Perhaps you've heard of the story of the angelic protection of the missionary by the name of John G. Patton. Uh, his autobiography was published in 1889. And in it, he recounts the story of God's dramatic protection of his life as he served to bring the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands. Uh, the story has been recounted time and time again. It was recounted in uh, Billy Graham's book on angels. It was recounted in Derek Thomas's commentary on Acts and Ajit Fernando's commentary as well. And in, in the latter, uh, Fernando recalls, recalls it like this. Hostile natives surrounded Patton's mission headquarters, intent on burning it and killing Patton and his wife. The two of them prayed all through that terror-filled night, asking God to deliver them. When daylight came, they were surprised to see the attackers leave. A year later, the chief of that tribe was converted to Christ, and Patton had an opportunity to ask him what kept them from burning the house and killing them. And the chief replied, Who were all those men who were with you? Patton said, There were no men there, only my wife and I. But the chief said that they had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords. They seemed to circle the mission station, so the tribesmen were afraid to attack. And Patton realized that God had sent his angels to protect them. Why? Why did God spare the life of John Patton and his wife? At least one reason would be to save that chief, that ruthless ruler who wanted Patton dead. And here we learn a valuable lesson, a lesson that we actually see in our text today. Ruthless rulers will not stop the advance of the word of God. That's what our text teaches. They may do some harm to some of God's people, but they can never stop the word of God from accomplishing the purposes for which God sends out his word. This not only gives us comfort, but it also gives us courage. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about together from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 25 this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles and turn in them to Acts chapter 12. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 920. 920. And while you're turning there, we should remember the aim and the agenda of the book of Acts. The aim from the very first verse of the book of Acts tells us that Luke means to chronicle the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, through his disciples. And Jesus himself, he sets the agenda of the book of Acts, really, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We've made it up to chapter 12. The last two of our studies in Acts chapters 10 and 11 were especially focused on Jesus' lordship, being shown that he is the Lord of all, not just of Jewish peoples, but as uh, the Lord of Gentiles as well, as the gospel has expanded into Gentile territories. And this has taught us that Jesus' gospel would not be stopped by faulty notions of who can and who cannot come to trust in the Lord and be saved by it. No, Jesus is Lord of all. He's the Lord of both Jews and Gentiles. And Acts 12, it shows Jesus' lordship in another way. It shows us that the word of God, which is to say the word about Jesus, will not be stopped by ruthless rulers. And so that's the, that's the thesis, that's the point of this sermon and the point of the passage. If you're looking for a single sentence to summarize the entire thrust of the sermon, that's it. The word of God will not be stopped by ruthless rulers. Let me just show you this as we scan across the passage before we dig into it deep. If you just run your eyes across Acts chapter 12, you will see that in the first five verses, we meet a ruthless ruler by the name of Herod. 
He puts to death James and imprisons Peter. But then we see the Lord in verses 6 to 19 rescue Peter from prison. And then this ruthless ruler, Herod, is put to death in verses 20 to 23. And finally, we see the expansion of the word there in Acts chapter 12, verses 24 to 25. So the the arc of the passage as a whole is that the word of God will not be stopped by ruthless rulers. So we're going to look at this passage in four sections under four headings. Herod's rage, the Lord's rescue, Herod's execution, and the word's expansion. If you didn't catch those four points, not to worry, I'll repeat each of them as we move into each new section. Let's take a look at Herod's rage, as we see there in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. Follow along now as I read. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Here, in these five verses, we certainly see Herod's anger, we see Peter's arrest, we see an alliance forming between Herod and the Jews, and the appeal that the church of God makes for Peter. Notice Herod's anger there in verse 1. He laid violent hands on some, you see that there, some who belonged to the church. Now this Herod, he has a history of family rage and anger. His grandfather was the Herod in Matthew chapter 2 who wanted to put the baby Jesus to death. So Herod has a a family history. He's following in the way of his his grandfather. This is Herod Agrippa that we're looking at, but that was Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2. And notice that he's, he's really being strategic in his assault, isn't he? He's putting his hands on some. He's going after, really, those who are the leaders of the church. That's what we see in the death of James there in verse 2. Now, there are two Jameses in our chapter. These are two different Jameses. This is not the brother of Jesus. He's not the James that that Peter mentions later in Acts chapter 12, verse 17. This is James, the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of John. This is uh, the James of the Peter, James, and John kind of inner circle of Jesus. This is the same James and John who who boldly asked to sit on Jesus' right hand and left. Those two brothers asked that of Jesus in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus told them, no, I don't have the authority to grant you to sit on my right and my left. But then he goes on to tell James and John what will become of them. In Mark chapter 10, verse 39, Jesus says, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In other words, Jesus actually predicted what we see here. That James would die. He would undergo a similar death. Jesus was put to death under the hands of a ruthless ruler, Pilate. And James, as we see here, he was too. And this phrase that he's killed by the sword, it's it's likely a reference to decapitation. So Herod is both kind of literally and and metaphorically trying to decapitate the church, trying to eliminate the rulers, and so suppress this Jesus movement. We see there Herod's anger being worked out further in verse 3 in the arrest of Peter. It's it's frightening because of what we know of Peter, Jesus also predicted his death in John chapter 21. 
Uh, so, so Jesus predicted that, that Peter would, in his old age, be led out and carried away. And perhaps the, the, the church is now very frightened by what is going on there. Their leaders are being targeted. And this reminds us, of course, of an earlier persecution and period in the church. If you flip back a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 1, you'll remember that Stephen was put to death. And, and after that, a great persecution arose. It broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. And we're told there in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that the apostles remained. The church survived that earlier period. They, they seem to have revived under the leadership and care of the apostles. And now, they're facing another round of persecution. That first round of persecution was really uh, by kind of a mob, almost beginning there in a moment to go and take Peter, uh, sorry, not Peter, Stephen, out. But now, here we have kind of state-sponsored persecution, authorized by Herod and, and pursued by Herod. Herod is seeking the prominent leaders of the church. And so, there's no doubt that the church is likely filled with fear in this moment. But, but not only that, not only is the, the state kind of pursuing terrorism through Herod, um, terrorism upon the church, that is, persecution on the church, we see that there's actually an alliance forming. Notice what Luke says about Herod. He, he says that he saw that this pleased the Jews. Notice that the paradigm that Herod is, is operating under there, right? He is recognizing that people like that kind of leadership. And he's, he's responding and pursuing it further. And he's forming this alliance with them. We get this recognition from uh, the, the mention of the days of the unleavened bread, a Jewish celebration, and, and the, the Passover. So Herod, he's, he's, he's calculating uh, when would this be, be most enjoyed by the Jewish peoples that don't want to in interrupt their, their holiday, but, but I still want to, to please them and, and execute this one who's been kind of troubling them. So Herod is forming this alliance with the Jewish people. And what's also striking about this, and that kind of sets us on edge as readers, is that the language that's used about Peter's arrest, it's the exact same language that's used in the Gospels about Jesus' arrest. It occurred at the time of Passover. Um, he's being persecuted. He's uh, arrested. He's being held. He's delivered over. All of that language is used in the Gospels about Jesus' arrest. So the Christians are thinking, and we as readers are thinking, Peter's end is execution. That, that's what's coming. And here we see that Peter is just walking in the footsteps and following in the footsteps of his Savior. And notice then the appeal. Though Herod is, is targeting Christians, really, ultimately, they are a proxy for Jesus and his hatred of Jesus. Notice that while Peter is kept in prison, the church earnestly keeps praying. What do you think it means to, to earnestly pray, pray? It means to fervently, vigorously, passionately plead with God in prayer. We need to think of this church meeting as those who are begging the Lord to rescue Peter. They're praying and pleading with him. We should think about this for our, our own lives, right? What are we showing when we pray? We're showing that we have needs. We're being honest as a church. That we have needs and that the Lord needs to answer them. We, we pray because we, we honor God. It, it, it shows our faith in His power. It shows our faith in His love and His care for us. And so we, brothers and sisters, members of, of Arlington Baptist, we should be earnestly devoted to prayer. Lord willing, 
um, next week, should the Lord Jesus tarry, if he doesn't come back, we are going to have a Sunday evening prayer service. What are some things that we should be earnestly praying about? What is burdening your heart, resting heavy on your heart that you think that we as a church family need to be praying about before the Lord, pleading with God for? Brothers and sisters, I often come with a list of things for us to pray about in that prayer meeting. But what's on your heart? Share those things with me. Maybe let's take those up next Sunday evening and pray about them and bring them before the Lord in prayer. And let's pray earnestly like this church in Jerusalem was praying for Peter. Yes, so we see Herod's rage. We see his anger, Peter's arrest. We see this alliance with the Jews. And yet, how does the church answer this anger? They appeal to God. They look to the only one who can help. And by God's grace, he does help. That's what we see next in our text. The Lord rescues Peter. Follow along now. This is our second point. The Lord's rescue. Follow along now. As I read Acts chapter 12, verses 6 to 19. Acts chapter 12, beginning there in verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's, an, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And Herod searched for him and did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Here we see Peter's rescue by the angel of the Lord, his return to his church family, as well as Herod's revenge or rage even upon the sentries who were guarding him. That's what we see here in these verses. Now I want to put your finger on the heartbeat of these verses. Take a look at verse 11. You see verse 11 there? 
When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish peoples were expecting. Notice Peter's mention of the Lord's rescue. Now move down to verse 17. This is the heartbeat of these verses. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he describes to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. That's the heartbeat of these verses. These verses in all sorts of ways. These are the main headlines. The Lord rescued Peter. But we, we get really supporting facts of the, the fact that this is the Lord's rescue in other details as well. So, so if you look at verse 6, you see Peter's rescue. It happened on that very night. Here is Herod wanting to bring Peter out and have him executed. And on that very night, the Lord frustrates Herod's plans. He stops his plans from putting Peter to death. And sometimes we note here that the Lord does things at the last minute. Not only that, verse 6 of chapter 12 points to us the impossibility of Peter's escape from a, from a human vantage point, right? Do you see all these phrases? He's between two soldiers. He's bound with two chains. And there are sentries guarding the prison. All of these things Luke means to stress to us. And Peter recognizes it's impossible for him to escape. He's not even trying for it to escape. He's sleeping. Now think about that. What kind of faith can sleep when a sword awaits? What kind of faith can sleep when a sword awaits? A faith that trusts in the sovereignty of God. A faith that is certain of receiving your reward. James had gone on to his reward to see his Savior face to face. And Peter knew that if he died, he would see Jesus as well. He was certain of receiving his reward. He, he could sleep. This is a faith that's certain that a worst a man can do to you is kill the body. And so you fear the one instead who can cast the soul into hell. Fear, you fear God above all things. This is a faith that is certain that God, even in this moment, is working all things together for good for those who love him. It's a Romans 8.28 kind of faith. This is a faith that knows that the advancement of God's word does not depend upon me surviving persecution. Peter had to, to recognize that, right? The message about Jesus is, is not going to stop simply because he puts me to death. It didn't stop when Stephen was put to death. No, the word actually spread as saints were scattered. So he's certain of that. This is a faith that loves the Lord Jesus more than life itself. Entrust yourself to your faithful creator while doing good. Let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. But what? God's truth abideth still. That's how the chapter ends. Peter must have known this. When ruthless rulers rage, show your trust by sleeping. Sound theology leads to sound sleep. Remember your God and rest in His care. This is the kind of faith that can sleep when a sword awaits. And notice, though Peter, though Peter is, is, is not the one agitating or trying to get out, he's sound asleep. The Lord, he sends an angel. And Peter is rescued by the power and the prompting of the angel of the Lord. Right In verse 7, he appears in the cell with a flash of light. 
He wakes Peter up. He strikes him on the side. He he frees him from his chains. He commands him to get dressed and and follow him. And Peter, he is, he's clueless, right? You see there, verse 19, he did not know that what was being done to him was real. They pass by the guards. Don't you love verse 10? The gates, they open of their own accord. Sure, Luke, that's how it happened. They just... They just happen to swing open. No, no, no. The Lord is is active and at work in in all of this. And we see there, of course, Peter's response to it all. He comes to himself. You see the heartbeat there in verse 11. He comes to himself. And it's only afterward that he does he see clearly that, yes, this is the Lord's work. And Peter, note carefully, he's giving glory to God. This is all of God. Peter was powerless in the midst of this. But God was powerfully at work in the midst of all of this. He is in danger. He was in danger from Herod and the Jews. He recognizes that. Right? Peter, there in, in, verse, um, in verse 11, I think it is, he sees that, that his end was going to be that of death. That, that, that was certain to him. And yet he, he attributes this rescue from prison and death to the Lord. I wonder, is Peter's death, does it strike you, not his death, sorry, is Peter's rescue, does it strike you as an analogy to our salvation? I, I think it should, and I think, in fact, uh, you, you ought to think about it, right? God is setting us free from slavery to sin. We're imprisoned in our sin. We're bound for certain eternal death. And, and you wonder if, if what we uh, see here in Acts chapter 12 is what Charles Wesley had in mind when he wrote the hymn that we were singing earlier. Verse 3. Don't skip over verses in hymns. Go ahead and sing them all. Verse 3. What, what does he write? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound. Peter was bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what Peter did. He followed the angel out of the prison. This is God's amazing love to us. This is how God has rescued us. We were powerless and bound and enslaved to our sin. And God, in his kindness and love, sovereignly sent his Holy Spirit to rescue us from sin and death. He rescued Peter from that cell and he has rescued us by God's grace from hell, hasn't he? Praise the Lord for his amazing and powerful rescue. And you should give glory to God for it just like Peter does. He recognizes it was the Lord's work. And you, dear Christian, need to recognize that God's saving of you was his work and you give praise and glory to him. Yes, this is what God has done. And not only should you give praise and glory to God, but like Peter, you should go and tell others about it. That's what he does in verses 12 to 17 as he returns to his church family, doesn't it? And and notice, brothers and sisters, notice what they're doing. What are they doing when Peter comes? They are praying. Here is the answer, God's answer to their prayers at the gate. And, And they don't seem to recognize it, do they? Right, Rhoda she hears Peter's voice, she, she recognizes it's him, and she leaves him at the gate. He's there just continually knocking. It's something of a comical scene, isn't it? But there they are, they're, they're praying. And, and I think we need to recognize the early church did not give up on praying, and we should neither. Um, Jesus taught us in Luke 18 that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. So let us pray and pray and keep on praying, just, just like these Brothers and sisters, and let's, let's try to recognize when God has answered our prayers too. Rhoda, she, she, she doesn't get it, and, 
And she goes back inside. She has this argument with the, the brothers and sisters there. And, and, and then they finally all come out and they, they were amazed, Luke communicates to us. Often it's hard for us to recognize and believe when God answers prayer. This is so true to our experience as Christians, isn't it? We've been praying something for a long time and, and suddenly God has worked and answered prayer and we think, did that, did that really happen? Um, yes, it did because God is pleased to do that. He, he works in this way. He works through prayer. And Peter, he teaches them, he tells them that this is the Lord's rescue. Again, note, he's giving glory to God. And he's also instructing them, you see there in verse 17, to tell these things to James and the brothers. Again, this is a different James that we saw in verse 2 of Acts chapter 12. This is James, the brother of Jesus. This is the, the James who wrote the book of James. This is the James who becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And we see him step up to the plate and, and lead the church there in Acts chapter 15. Peter, through sharing this information with um, these brothers and sisters, and by telling them to go tell James and the brothers, he, is, he wants to encourage the church's confidence in the Lord. And Peter also wants the church to know the Lord's consolation too. He, he wants to comfort them, right? They've been grieving the loss of one of the apostles. And now they were comforted that, that one of their leaders was spared. One of their brothers was spared. And their, answers, their, their prayers were answered. This points to the Lord's power. Which Herod clearly does not get in verses 18 and 19, does he? Here, here we see kind of Herod's revenge, his rage on the guards, as it were. Peter has disappeared from the cell in verses 6 to 11. Then he disappears from the scene in verse 17. You see there, he departed and went to another place. We don't know where he went. He, he's, he's disappeared from the scene. And the soldiers, notice they are clearly worried about Peter's absence. That phrase, no little disturbance, it means to communicate great stress, extreme anxiety. They were worried about what Herod would do. And then we have Herod's search there in verse 19. He searches for Peter, can't find him. And then he puts the sentries to death. He puts the sentries to death. Those who kind of missed Peter's escape. He holds them responsible. He had wanted to kill Peter, but he can't kill Peter. He's going to kill them. And then we have his, his resettlement. All of this, it, it underscores not only that Peter was not found, but that Herod was not really as in control as he thought he was. No, Herod has to go off and be angry, really, at another place, is what we're going to see in a minute. Herod's attempt to put Peter to death was frustrated precisely because the Lord is in control and he rescued Peter. And I think that we, we need to draw several applications from, from this section of God's Word. Here's the first we need to recognize that God's providence. His plans for His people, how He deals with them, how He cares for them, is, is varied. God's providence is varied. James dies, but Peter's delivered. Those are two ways that God dealt differently with these men, didn't He? God's providence is varied. That's not to say that God couldn't have rescued James if He wanted to. No, it was just God's plan for James to meet his reward, and to be called home to the Savior. Peter's delivered. But we need to recognize, brothers and sisters, that some believers will face the sword and others will escape. Our life experiences will vary based upon God's providences 
His providence and His plans for us. And we can trust His plans as we prayed earlier. We know that for those who love God, all things work out together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. His plan aims at our good and His glory. And His plans for us may be different than another brother or sister in Christ. He's, he's trying to conform us all to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he goes about that in different ways for each one of us because He knows what each one of us needs to grow in Christ's likeness. So in God's varied province, we've got to be careful not to, to be angry ourselves or anxious that we have a different experience than another brother or sister in the Lord. We've got to trust God in the midst of all of this. He's working His plans out. Whether God means to spare us from ruthless rulers, or if we're to face the sword, we can know that nothing happens outside of His providential plan and power. Here's another application that we need to make from this text. We need to obey the Lord. James obeyed the Lord unto death. And Peter obeyed even as he escaped. Right? He, he did what the angel of the Lord told him to do. The path, the safest path for you, dear Christian, is to walk in God's precepts, to keep His commands, to obey Him all the way until He calls you home, no matter where that path leads you. Here's another thing that we need to learn from this passage and apply to our own lives. We should know that the Lord will rescue us one way or another. Your rescue, dear Christian, is certain. God will rescue us through death and bring us home. Or He will rescue us through some mighty act, like we see Peter's deliverance. Or He will rescue us through energy to endure. Peter himself knew this. He taught others this. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he said that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Peter knew this in his own life experience. Paul knew this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. You know, as we think about these trials of, of Peter, and James, and even our own lives as Christians, not all trials end with the sword. Or face the sword. Uh, trials don't always have to be ratcheted up to that high level. Sometimes our, our trials and the suffering or the oppression that we face is more minor and muted. So, so we might face sickness or, or struggling with sin or oppression in the workplace or bullying on the playground or your sports team or whether you're being tempted or, or tried. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to turn to the Lord in prayer. Purpose to do what is right and to walk by faith. And as we do, we need to do one more thing. We need to do what the church did. We need to leave the judgment to God. Notice what the church did. They went back. Peter was arrested. James had been uh, killed. They go back to being devoted to the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, when facing oppression, needs to leave judgment in God's hands. So we're going to think about that some more here in our next section. But what we see is that we need to leave it in the Lord's hands and trust Him to repay. So let's turn now and consider our, our third point, Herod's execution. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 12, verses 20 to 23. Acts chapter 12, verses 20 to 23, where we see Herod's execution. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country 
for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Well, we see Herod's enmity and his anger against Tyre and Sidon. We see Herod's exaltation in this oration and speech that he gives. And of course, we see his execution. Notice Herod's enmity, his anger there in verse 20. He's angry again, this time with Tyre and Sidon. We need to recognize that Herod is a mad man. Anger, Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5, it leads to murder. Recognize that that's where your anger leads ultimately. If we don't rein it in, it ends in murder. And what does Herod do? He murders a lot of people, doesn't he? He murders James. He tries to murder Peter. He murders the guards. And now, it's no wonder the people of Tyre and Sidon are somewhat frightened by him. Herod appears to have stopped or blocked the food supply that's coming to these two cities. These are port cities. And, and Herod has somehow gotten in the middle of their supply line. Or perhaps he was the one who was providing that supply line uh, to them. And, and they recognize, Tyre and Sidon recognize, they need to resolve this issue. They, they go to Herod, they, they seek for peace, and, and they're, they're smart. They go about it privately and publicly. They, they go through Herod's chamberlain, which is kind of his trusted personal assistant. Um, and, and they're trying to, to uh, lobby through him to persuade Herod to take it down a, a notch. So they, they, they hire, or they not hire, they, they go through Blastus to make this private approach. And then after seeking, it seems to, they've done this, they've sought this kind of peace accord. What they then do is plan to have this public event where this peace deal is somewhat announced and, and they can laud Herod for his grace and his generosity and kind of exalt him publicly. That, that, that seems to be what's taking place here, this private approach and then this public approach. But I think as we think about Herod, we, we need to be, re, be warned by his constant anger. Right? He, he was angry at Christians, angry at, angry at these soldiers, angry at Tyre and Sidon. He's, he's angry at, at everyone. And this shows that he had really exalted himself in his heart before he ever exalted himself on that throne. That's what we need to recognize. That's what anger is. It's a self-exaltation. I, I, I deserve the right to this or that, to be honored in this way, to be obeyed in that way. And so the response is, is one of anger when you don't get that. There's this exaltation in heart. Pride and selfishness and anger, they're these symptoms of exaltation. So, you can ask yourself, how, how are you doing with anger? Are you constantly with anger? Like, are you constantly angry? Maybe it's not boiling over like Herod. Maybe it's on a low simmer. How, how are you doing with, with anger? Are you, are you angry at your spouse or your kids? Are you angry at your boss or your coworkers? Angry at your, your neighbors? Are you angry at the drive-thru attendant? Or the person in front of you at the grocery store? Are you angry at others on the road? Or maybe kids, maybe you're angry at a classmate in school. Maybe you're angry with your siblings. Maybe you're angry at your parents. Anger can be a symptom of prideful self-exaltation. Herod, as I said, he exalted himself in his heart before he ever exalted himself on that throne. And the same is true for us 
when we rage. Especially, let me encourage those of you, especially if you have been entrusted with authority. So, husbands, fathers, supervisors, managers, if you have been entrusted with authority, check your anger. Elders as well, right? We we have authority as well. We we need to check our hearts for pride, for self-exaltation. And and all of those, whether in positions of authority or not, all of us who, who become angry, when we rage, we need to repent. We need to turn to the Lord and seek forgiveness from God. And then turn and seek forgiveness to those whom we've wronged. So we need to to humble ourselves, not grow up in in haughtiness and self-exaltation. And Herod's exaltation there, you see it in verses 21 and 22. It's it's something else. There's this appointed day where they're going to have this celebration. Herod, he puts on his royal robes. He sits on this throne. He delivers a speech. And the people shout, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, people do this all the time, right? Monarchs and leaders and rulers, they, they do this kind of thing all the time. They, they sit on their thrones, they, they deliver speeches, and, and people applaud, right? I mean, in, in our context, we don't have kings, but people give these great speeches in assemblies, and, and people applaud and chant names. So this kind of thing happens all the time, right? Well, what, what, is, what is going on here? Well, the, the, the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, he... He gives us some some more insight on on Herod's exaltation, his sinful exaltation. He he writes in his own account that Herod, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's ray upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was resplendent. And presently his flatterers cried out that he was a god. So here's Josephus, not a Christian, But he is testifying to this historical event that Luke is recalling. And he says, this is exactly what happened. Herod certainly did exalt him. Put on this fancy robe, had to make sure he came in the time where the sun was shining down, and he was glowing and giving his speech. And then Josephus confirms this. He goes on to say that the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. They they actually didn't really mean it, which is striking. But this sinful Self-exaltation leads to a sovereign execution. And Luke tells us why. He he connects Herod's exaltation, his self-exaltation, to his execution. Right? The angel of the Lord immediately struck Herod. And interestingly enough, this word for striking Herod is the same same word that's used about Peter being struck by the angel of the Lord earlier in the chapter. So the Lord can strike a man and save him, or he can strike a man and put him to death. The Lord is showing his power, power greater than Herod's. This presents a a bold contrast between the God, Herod, and the real God, the one true God. God is not powerless to lay a finger on Herod. He can touch his stomach and put him to death. But Herod is powerless to put Peter to death when he wants to. No, our God is in control. And notice that Luke, uh, I love it, Luke gives us theological reasons for Herod's execution, doesn't he? he? He tells us, why Herod was executed? Because he did not give glory to God. Right? This is why he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Our God will brook no rivals. He is the only one who is worthy of worship. And those who seek to steal his glory will face his judgment. 
either in this life or in the life to come. Our God will brook no rivals. And this, this is a warning to us all. Stealing God's glory can be a matter of life and death. Is in fact a matter of life and death. Make sure you give glory to God. That's what the scriptures teach us. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do in word or deeds, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Peter glorified God, didn't he? He was rescued and saved, but Herod did not. He was put to death. How can you glorify God? Well, you can glorify God by loving Him and doing what He commands. We can glorify God in, in, in big, major ways and glorify God in small, minor ways. The first way, the, the biggest way that we can glorify God is by loving Him, as I said. By, by loving Him because He's given His Son to rescue us from the judgment that we deserve. Because the truth is, is that in all of our lives, we have sinfully exalted ourselves. Just think back to the very beginning of the Bible. Back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam sinfully exalted himself. Instead of doing what God commanded, he decided that he would choose between right and wrong. He, he would determine what was right and what was wrong. And so he exalted himself. He, he sought to take God's throne. He sought to bring himself glory, to rule over his life and others. But God would not have that. And in fact, God judged that. Sin entered the world as a result of Adam's sin. And we have all been walking in his footsteps following him. We've all been glory seekers, trying to make our names great rather than God's name great. We, we've all sinned like Adam. We've all decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And, and in that, we're, we're rejecting his rule and setting our own rule up. We're glorifying, we're glorying in ourselves. And God will punish that unless we love him because he's given his son and first loved us. God sent his son into the world to show us what true glory looks like. To show us what it really looks like through a whole life lived to glorify God. Jesus never sinned. He sought to honor and glorify God the Father in heaven. He obeyed him every step of his life. And in an effort to glorify his Father, Jesus laid down his life on the cross. He died bearing the sin and the punishment due to it. He, Jesus died bearing our sin for glorifying ourselves. And he was buried there in the tomb for three days. And after that, God raised Jesus from the dead, showing his true glory, his true worth and worthiness of being worshipped. And he calls us now to turn from our sin and self-glorying and to trust in Jesus Christ. That's how we glorify God, by loving him, by loving Jesus and the Son above all else. Friend, have you glorified God in the way in which he demands of you? He calls you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus for your salvation. That's how you can glorify God. And then you can see that worked out in minor ways in your life. So, brothers and sisters, when, when you have success, when you're lauded at work or at home, give glory to God. If you give a speech or a sermon, give glory to God. Praise the Lord for His work through you. If you're successful at work, or on the, the ball field, or on the track, or in the swimming pool, then give glory to God. Tell others that your skill, your intellect, your ability, or athleticism is a gift from God, and that He is the one to whom all glory and honor is owed. Give glory to God. 
This is a warning to us all that we ought not exalt ourselves. But there's another warning as well in this passage. This is a warning to rulers who exalt themselves. Rulers have been ordained as servants of God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13 verse 1. They are divinely appointed. Civil magistrates, to use the language of our church's statement of faith, civil magistrates, kings, presidents, congressmen, judges, justices, and others in positions of authority have been placed there by God. They've been appointed to serve God. They are appointed to serve justice and righteousness, not according to their own whims, but according to God's word. They've been appointed to administer mercy. They've been appointed, Paul tells us, to be a terror to evil. And not evil as they see it, but evil as God sees it. They've been appointed to be those who reward good. And not the good that they want subjectively in their own hearts and sinful and skewed lives, like we all have. But the good that God tells us is good, objectively, in His revealed and inspired Word. They've been appointed. And they do not have endless authority. Their authority is circumscribed by God. And they ought to know the limits of their authority. And they ought to seek in their rule to honor and glorify God. And when they step outside the bounds of God's delegated authority and rule, or they rule contrary to God's revealed righteousness, then they are exalting themselves above God's rule and placing themselves in a precarious position before the all-seeing God. And this text warns them not to seek their glory, but to seek glory, the glory of God. And here again, another application for us is that we are reminded that we ought to leave the judgments to God. Paul writes just in that chapter before Romans 13. He writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we, we can trust God. He will repay. But we leave the judgment to God. We see here in Acts chapter 12 that he's, he's quite capable of judging and judging justly. So we leave it to Him. So when ruthless rulers rage, pray like the church did for Peter's release. When ruthless rulers rage, praise God like Peter did when he was rescued. When ruthless rulers rage, patiently wait upon God and His justice. And do one more thing. Proclaim the good news about Jesus. Because that's that's the goal of our passage. That's the goal of our calling as Christians. To make the Word of God known. Let's take a look at our fourth and final uh, section. Fourth and final point. The Word's expansion. So we've seen Herod's rage. And we've seen the Lord's rescue. We've seen Herod's execution. And now we see the Word's expansion. Read verses 24 and 25. But. It's a wonderful contrast there. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So here we see mission prosperity, right, as the word increases and is multiplied, and mission preparation in Barnabas and Saul and John Mark as they get ready to go on a missionary journey. And I love... As a point of that contrast, that opening word, but just, just revel in that in a minute. The execution is contrasted with the expansion. Right? Herod breathed his last. 
But the Spirit was breathing new life into people. That's what that phrase, the Word of God increased and multiplied, means. It means that people are being saved through the preaching of the Word about Jesus. This message that God is is reconciling sinners to Himself, that He's offering forgiveness, that His Son's blood was shed for them, that they might be forgiven. This message is being multiplied by the gracious and powerful work of the Spirit, and people are believing and coming to trust in Jesus. Herod tried to stop and suppress the spread of the good news about Jesus, but he could not. We've seen this before in Acts, right? Thinking back to Acts chapter 8. Persecution arose, and the gospel prospered, and it was spread. Yes, this is what God tends to do. Where there is pressure, He tends to promote preaching and the prosperity of His message. John Stott put it so well, reflecting on this chapter. The beginning and the end of the chapter, he writes... At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, Oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride abased. That's exactly right. Because the Lord will see to it that His word will not fail in the purpose for which He sends it. Yes, the word of God will not be stopped by ruthless rulers. But notice, Acts 12 has a curious end, doesn't it? Verse 25, we we meet Barnabas and Saul. And John Mark again. What happened? In the very next chapter, right, they're going to be sent off to spread the gospel. But, but what happened to Peter? Where did he go? I mean, he's disappeared just as fast as that angel has disappeared. What, what is going on? Why is Peter gone? Why are we told more about his, his ministry? Well, because Peter's not the point, as another brother said so eloquently to me. Peter's Peter's not the point of this passage. The prosperity of the word of God is the point. Peter is is a messenger for God. And that's his role, to serve the word of God. Luke is exalting the, the power of the word of God. It's breaking through various kinds of barriers. Barriers between Jews and Gentiles and barriers of ruthless rulers. The word of God, it will not be stopped. And this is what we need to think about as well. In a certain sense, brothers and sisters, we're not the point. Our persecution, our oppression is not the point. Jesus is the point. And making the good news about Him is the point. God's great goal is not to preserve and protect the safety and security of His people. That much is clear in Herod's rage and James's death. Now, God may be pleased to, to do that sometimes, and that's clear in Peter's rescue. But ultimately... God's great goal is His glory and seeing His word about Jesus expand. And He achieves it by by sending out His word to save sinners like you and me. The word of God will not be stopped by ruthless rulers or anything else for that matter. God's great goal is to see the Lord Jesus Christ loved, worshipped, and known where He is not. That's why He spared John G. Patton and his wife in the New Hebrides Islands. So that they could proclaim the word about Jesus to that ruthless ruler who wanted Him dead but instead was saved a year later. That's why Acts 12 is not ultimately about Peter. It's not ultimately about Saul or Barnabas or Paul either. 
the remainder of Acts is not about them either. It's about the Word of God reaching the ends of the earth. And if you know what the Word of God is about, then you know why God is determined to send His Word out. Because as we'll sing in just a few moments, God's Word brings strangers home. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God is that great message of peace with God. That glory seekers like us are saved and spared from God's wrath to give glory to Him. That's what this message is about. It's about peace with God. About reconciliation through Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins. And the promise of eternal life. Have you received this powerful word? So powerful that it will send you out to tell somebody else about Jesus. Have you joined in the mission of making the word of God known? Have you come to see that Jesus and the message of his saving love is so precious and so powerful that it means more to you than life itself? Brothers and sisters, in a world obsessed with safety and security, we need to recognize that we are safe and secure until God deems our work of furthering his word done, finished. Until that time comes, we have to be as relentless about sharing Jesus as Herod was ruthless in seeking out Christians. Until our good God calls us home, either by the sword or sickness or slowly coming, succumbing to old age, we must be more determined than men like Herod. If God doesn't mean for his word to be stopped by ruthless rulers, then it can't stop with us because of fear of man, or love of the world, or even love of life itself. How do you think God means to make His Word expand and multiply? He means to do it through us, through the people who believe and live as though Christ really is all and worthy of all, because He is. He's worth everything, and casting your soul upon Him may cost you everything, but you will gain an eternal life and glory with Him. He is the Savior who bled and died and was raised for you. Give your life to love Him, to serve Him, and to make Him known so that the Word multiplies and expands. Let's pray that God would give us grace to do that now. Let's pray together.